Welcome to Season 4 of the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. I'm Karen Hay and this season we're delighted to bring you the voices of authors from the deep south of New Zealand. We'll be featuring interviews from last year and some from 30 years ago. We'll be hearing from children's authors and poets. There will be battles fought and literary successes won as they each tell their story of living and writing in Aotearoa. Kyle Newburn is one of New Zealand's most prolific and eclectic writers. Kyle became a full-time writer in 1997 and was president of NZSA for four years, from 2013 to 2017. She's dedicated to the welfare of writers across Aotearoa. She writes mostly children's books and junior fiction, but perhaps surprisingly, books didn't feature in her own childhood. She talked with Naomi Arnold last year about her childhood, dominated by a tough father and her efforts to live as a boy. We had no books in the house until I was at high school. My, my parents never read. My father, even to this day, says he never read a book he didn't have to. And I, I once showed him one of my books when I first got published and said, here's my book, I've been published. And he just said, I don't read and put, just tossed it aside on the on the sofa and it was a picture book so it was like okay very dedicated to the cause of literacy so that's fine and my my oldest brother was into surfing at an early age and my other brother was into soccer we were all into soccer we played soccer and and I quite enjoyed soccer because I'd go and I'd have a time away from the family and I'd end up often going to back to a friend's house and and the highlight of that was this friend had this friend called John. He had his parents were probably middle class compared to our rather working class at that stage, and they had takeaways on the weekends. And so every weekend I'd go there and after soccer and it'd be I'd get a burger, and this was like the most amazing thing in the world. Or you'd go and get Chinese uh, Chinese takeaways or Big Macs or. The first Big Macs had come, the Whoppers had come, and Bonanza Steakhouse with a steak burger. That was one of the highlights of my life. And and there was also, but then the, the, when I was, I think I was 12, my father decided to become my coach of my soccer team for some reason. And that was the end of that fun. <laughs> so we, for some reason, yeah, he didn't take, didn't coach my brother's teams, he decided to coach my teams. So it wasn't much much fun because he's very in controlling and I was never very I wasn't really into soccer I was more into the social aspect of the soccer and I was okay because I was tall and so I had my my benefits as a soccer player but I was never dedicated enough to like running I wasn't a good runner I was tall so and a couple of times during the soccer I would be totally embarrassed because my father would suddenly yell out you'd hear his voice on the side and you'd make a mistake and he'd be like um just this biggest insult, you know, just try to embarrass me in front of all the other other parents and other players. And it's almost like distancing himself from my mistakes because he didn't make mistakes, I think, in his in his view, he was mistake-free zone. Nothing he ever did was a, was wrong. I'm not sure we were, as long as we paid, paid, did exactly what we were told and didn't make mistakes, we were all left alone. And as soon as we made a mistake, we were almost ridiculed in public as if possible and we were beaten because we were how dare we upset the perfection of this bubble what line of work was he in policeman so he was um 
ended up being, you know, we kept getting promoted. In those days, it was promotion by length of tenure. You each, every three or four years, you would sit an exam and you'd get promoted. And so slowly over the years, we had more money as it came in. It would be, we'd move up in the world. And we had, went, went on a trip once down around the bottom of Australia, a big family trip and down to the snow, we saw snow and did a few things and that was our only big trip. The other trips were always just basically um, up to the coast for, for a week of surfing. It was all pretty, all pretty low, low, um, what, low what? <laughs> I'm not even sure what I was trying to say there. Just low. <laughs> it was, and we had nothing too exciting, nothing too traumatic, just keep your head down. And I was good at school, nobody noticed I was good at school. Um, even my teachers to a degree. I remember my one report card I got was saying about my writing was saying, um, I was a good writer, but I, I lacked somewhat of originality and imagination. I was thinking, what, what, how dare you? How dare you say that to me? Just turn around, don't they? They do, you think, you. I, yeah, nobody really paid attention. I was, I was in a lot of fights at school. I would get um, this bubbling anger, which I'd then I'd trace back to being, because I knew I was trans, I knew I was in the wrong body from the age of whenever you know these things, it was just wrong. And I knew that if I couldn't say anything because that was wrong as well. And I was just somehow just terrible. I was a mistake and mistakes were punished. So I had to keep it to myself. And I also kept a lot of things to myself because I kept that I kept school work to myself. I didn't, I wouldn't boast, I wouldn't brag, I wouldn't come home and say, wow, because there was no reaction. I was like, here's my report card, sign it, take it back. There was no, never any, wow, you're doing really well. Congratulations, what a, what a great kid. And so I was into a lot of fights. Every time someone would do something, I would, you know, they'd pull my button or break, rip a button because we're playing Red Rover, which is called Bull Rush here. So we'd play that before school and often kids would just do something stupid and grab me and break, rip my shirt so I would just go into a fury and pin them down and only you didn't hit anyone you just pin them down and wrestle them into submission and once I was in submission then it was like almost embarrassment and feeling guilty about that as well so you felt the anger spilling over quite a lot because mm. of what you were trying to trying to hide this sort of because you knew you were there was this sense of you're just not there's pointlessness to it, a futility, that you're feeling like you should be over there, but you're here and you're trying to fit in and, and anything that might make you stand out. And the idea was to not stand out. And even with the, like, I, my name is Kyle, but in those days there was no Kyle, so I was the only one. And the only name was Kylie, which is, and so, and my deputy pr um, principal at the time, he would always call me Kylie which was, you know, the ultimate embarrassment for a, someone who's trying to be a boy. And so, and so, and I would try not to do anything because every time we, we'd have the, a parade in the mornings, and we'd all have to watch the flag rise while they're playing God Save the Queen, the terrible pipe band playing God Save the Queen. And we'd have to look at this flag going up the mast and, and, every, and then we'd have announcements and, and I hated doing something right or good because I would be called and say, would Kylie Newburn come to the come up to the thing and I'd have to walk through all these grinning faces of... It's brutal. It's totally, and I have to go up and get my thing, whatever it was, and think, ah. So I was always trying to avoid standing out and 
I, I often, yeah, so all these fights were never hurt to hurt anyone. It was just to basically assert my fact that I was actually a boy and I was going to show them. And and I remember one, one fight when I was in year three, I think, because my brothers were still at school. And I was having, in a fight with a boy who was a lot more popular than I was. He was a, used to hang out with the older kids a lot. And he was a nice guy. We were sort of in our friend group sort of thing. For some reason he did something, I'm not sure what, no idea what, the next thing you know, we were fighting and this big group gathered around and in amongst it people all cheering and stuff and I heard my brothers cheering for him. <laughs> so, so I sort of knew that I was alone from an early age, but there was no one there. I mean my sister was there for me, she was, but not much use really in that context. There was no one to come to my defence, there was no one who was going to stick up for me, there was no one who was going to be, and I don't blame them because that's when you're living in that environment, then, you know, you're not encouraged to be standing out. So they were trying to probably do the same as I was, was just muddle through and try to keep their heads down. And so they just, I think they just sort of naturally, instinctively saw which way the wind was blowing and whatever was most popular, they would be on that side. It wouldn't matter. If I was, if people were cheering for me, they would have cheered for me. So I don't hold it as a personal thing and so so I grew up by myself really or feeling by myself and it's not you know my mother would be she was always there for us she was always at home when we got home from school and we'd bake pikelets and yeah so it wasn't really reality really but that's how I felt because of who I am and having this you you cut off from the world and you're isolated and you're feeling like you're wrong and if anyone found out they would be not sure what I imagined would happen to me, but I knew I had to hide it at all costs. Did books factor in your primary school years? Yep, I um, at some point in primary school we got um, the book club came into school, and we were allowed to choose two books a semester or a term or, and so I would go through the catalogue, and I was only allowed two books, so I had to be really careful. So I was just peruse this thing get to the infinite detail just trying to find which book I really 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 wanted but then of course then it was also this thing of well I had to choose a book which was <laughs> suitable for a boy because I didn't want to give myself away because so I had to choose so I chose a lot of adventure things and um, three investigators you know Alfred Hitchcock and the three investigators Alfred Hitchcock had nothing to do with it his name was on everything in those days he, he Alfred Hitchcock milk we're drinking <laughs> having Alfred Hitchcock he's like the Donald Trump of his time it's got his name on it so it must be really scary so we um, had those and I had the mad scientist club and and so I was and it was it was an escape and I was really good at reading I thought I was good at writing my teacher obviously disagreed take that I got my revenge on him eventually all kids probably try on their parents clothes but what was that like for you I mean you tried them on I guess you looked yourself in the mirror and then what were the feelings throughout throughout that Mm. process for you um well trying them on was always exciting because I was for a start I was furtive and no one so there's that frisson of of I might be caught and but generally it was always met ended with embarrassment and shame and disgust and I was like you look stupid you're as soon as I looked at myself I was like you what a what a disgusting human being you should be ashamed of yourself you should be you deserve everything you get sort of thing why are you doing this it's shameful and terrible and 
So, yeah, it wasn't the best part of this time in my life. And after that, I then basically vowed to forgo everything like that. And I knuckled down and I did school and just kept my head down. And I sort of swapped friends every year. I would have some, some guy who I'd get sort of hang out with. And each year, at the end of the year, it was like, oh, well, I'll move on to another one. And sort of partly avoiding getting too close to anyone, but also partly because it was never anything deep there anyway. It was just convenient having someone to hang out with, do stuff with, but never actually did much outside of school. So just school school friends, and then I'd go home and be at home by ourselves and with the family, and that was about it. So, and um, at the end of the year 12, we had our breakup party, and one of the kids came over to me and because all our results had come out and we'd got a final tertiary entrance score and uh, I was in the top few percent in in Queensland and a guy, a guy in the group who I hung out with, he came over and said, I didn't know you were smart. <laughs> so, so I was doing a good job of even faking, <laughs> I'm not sure what he thought. I was so, and I'd already decided by that stage I wanted to do something with writing. But writing was not a job. You, there's no job. No one can become a writer. And there was no writing. My Nobody encouraged me to read. No one encouraged me to write. No one cared less what I was doing with myself. Uh, my father was quite proud of my brother who became a sort of representative um, soccer player. He was goalkeeper. My other brother was rebelling and going surfing and then dropping. You know, he had to repeat school one year because he was not going very well and he was spending most, most of his time surfing because he was then old enough to have a car so he would drive off with all the other guys and go surfing all the time so he wasn't doing very good at school and neither was my other brother particularly they were doing okay to pass and they never had any great aspirations my sister the same she was muddling through they were clever enough but not not putting in much effort whereas I actually spent lots of time studying even though no one noticed me studying so I really aced my exams and I was really good at, I could remember stuff and I got 99% in accounting for two years straight. Wow. <laughs> because it's all just remembering stuff and being precise and as most, and my father thought I could be an accountant. <laughs> I thought, shoot me now. So I thought, imagine writing, but we didn't know any, I didn't read any Australian books, so I didn't know any such thing as an Australian author. We. We read a couple at school, you know, the chant, we read, what did we read? My Brother Jack, and that's probably about it, I think, until, yeah. So Australian literature wasn't on our, my radar, I didn't read Australian books, I didn't have any idea, I couldn't name an Australian writer except probably Colin McCulloch or something with the Thornbirds. And I would sort of imagine being Agatha Christie, you know, just writing crime novels. I even plotted a crime novel when I was... 14 or 15, I've still got the plot. <laughs> you never know, it might, be, it, might, <laughs> it might be in a movie coming to you. Okay, so you're writing complicated things early. Well, I was trying to, yeah. anyway. I was imagining writing complicated things. I was imagining, but then I realised that I discovered that there's only two jobs with writing was advertising and journalism. So I decided to study, do a double major in advertising journalism and at the time, the Queensland Institute of Technology had the only 
full-time advertising degree in Southern Hemisphere at least. So I signed up for that and as a second major I was doing journalism but I basically told everyone I was doing journalism and doing some advertising because again it was not really journalism was something people could understand they read the newspaper they watched TV and but I soon realized that facts and I don't get along very well I'm not really <laughs> not really into research or so I studied and I was really good advertising writing stuff I was really good copywriter and and that was my outlet for my creativity at the time but then at the end of end of the university, um, I was, was really good at the advertising se- section and didn't really. I was a very average journalist. Never learnt shorthand. I just wrote very fast. <laughs> I could really write really fast, and if I if I wrote my story up straight away, I would remember it um, enough to, to to write it down and recall it accurately. Otherwise, my writing would be so terrible I couldn't couldn't understand what I wrote. A couple of days later, I'd look at the notes and think, "What is that? <laughs> what does that actually mean?" So I and then out of university, I got a job in a newspaper in Warwick, which is west of Brisbane, west of Toowoomba, or south of Toowoomba. I was a sports reporter, which was quite fun. But I had to live in Warwick, which was a very rural town with. It's claimed to fame was had the most pubs per capita in in, the, in um, Queensland at least. So I was a, a sports reporter for a while, but um, the combination by then I'd already decided I want to be, I wanted to leave, get out of there. I didn't know why, I didn't know where I was going, but I wanted to get out of Brisbane. I wanted to get out of Australia. I wanted to go away, sort of maybe this fantasy world of maybe there's somewhere where I could fit in, where I could find. Maybe there was a place full of, maybe there's a trans world where people, all these trans people just frolic around free in the hills. I'm not, I'm not sure what I was imagining, but at least somewhere more open and liberal. You're listening to the NZSA Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we wanted to take this opportunity to let you know about the new online writer toolkit. From getting a new project started to negotiating a contract, the writer toolkit will take you through a year's worth of learning about craft and industry. Taught by experienced writing professionals, the Writer Toolkit will contain pre-recorded online content with writing exercises or assignments which you can work through at your own pace. Visit authors.org.nz to learn more. Kyle had a varied work life before becoming a full-time writer. She worked as a journalist, teacher, environment centre manager, dishwasher, interviewer, traffic surveyor, apple picker, machine operator, and even built her own house during a winter in central Otago. As she tells Naomi, though, wanting to be a writer was probably there all along. Um, The process was building up all my life, probably, was that I wanted to write, but I think in those years I'd come across more and examples of people writing. New Zealand's quite a small place and you end up coming across for the first time I met writers. Um, no one significant perhaps, 
but I met a you know there's a German guy who'd written a couple of crime novels and there's another guy who I knew who'd written something else and suddenly you think actually maybe I could have a crack at it and previously it would have been having tried to make a living Marion was making poffery and as soon as she made enough more than the doll we um, I got off the doll actually I decided I've always wanted to write so the first thing I did was um, I had a collection of short stories I'd written short stories sort of science fiction stuff nothing was robots and things I don't like science part of science fiction I'm more social science fiction like Frederick Brown or Theodore Sturgeon or all the early and so I put decided to self-publish a collection of short stories and um, 10 stories my own little drawings and I called it Don't Tell God I'm an Atheist this is about sort of stories about a lot of stories about metaphysics and life and for for mid-twenties almost almost how old was I? I was 30 by then 30 something and then thinking I knew more than I did in those days it was the idea of sending stuff on internet there was no internet really so I went to a local printing company and since I was environmental because I started the Environment Centre in Dunedin and run that for three years in the meantime I decided to do recycle paper and recycle card which meant that every copy of the book was $10 to print so I printed 100 copies that was $1,000 and put it out there and went to markets and didn't sell any much sent um, 30 copies to bookshops around the country and to reviewers with a stamp, self-addressed envelope saying, please, if you want to stock this, have you stock them. If not, please return my book. And I got one book back. <laughs> so was 29 books vanished. <laughs> and I managed to sell, basically in the end I sold, I was selling for $20 and it was $10 cost. So, so I sold, in the end I sold 50 books and I basically got my money back. But I thought, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to self-publish again. It's just relentlessly hard work. And especially in those days when there was no internet really as such. It was just starting really, wasn't it? 1997, 6. It wasn't really, I had no computer. So, And then um, Marion was making money, so I said, well, I'm going to write. So, so I sat down and decided to write. I wrote full time. I wrote eight hours a day, every day, six days a week, seven days a week for a year and a half. And I wrote a... Um, science fiction, well, a futuristic gender satire and sent it off to all the publishers. And I'd already done my research. I'd heard, I'd read all the, you know, uh, writer's guides and things, which had all these addresses of publishers and also saying things like, you'd likely to get a card back. If you get a card back, that's all right. Don't take it, just move on. And if you ever get a, um, any information from a publisher, a letter, then take it seriously because they're busy people they're not going to waste their time. And I got sent it out to all these publishers and one publisher wrote back. I had actually a letter saying I was just bemoaning the lack of originality in the manuscripts I'm sent and yours land on my table. It's, it's startlingly original and I shall pass it on to readers. And I was going, oh, cool, that was easy. And then months later I got a letter back and the reader who she assured me was a well-read widely read person the first line of the report was I invariably find these this entire genre tedious to the point of exhaustion this was no exception 
clearly didn't get it and didn't understand it. And yes, it's not great. It's in re- looking back, it's just not. It's not brilliant. It's but I thought it was an idea there, and it was well enough written. Trying too hard, perhaps, but so I decided okay, I'll do something else rather than rewrite it because it didn't seem sensible to rewrite it. So I spent another year writing another book, which was a sort of a slightly introverted analysis of breakdown of a relationship. And I sent that away, and I got another letter back from a thing saying um, it's a bit introverted, which is how I know it's an introverted story <laughs> because I was told it was. So then I wrote another one, I wrote a sort of part life story about building a house and living in the country and adapting to a rural area when you're not from a rural area and about, about finding a home and building a home. And I got another, I actually got a publisher rang me up and said they thought I was a different writer under a pseudonym because they said it was really good, I really enjoyed it, but it's not economical enough. It was probably just not, didn't feel like it would sell enough to warrant it. I wrote another story which was um, sort of a, 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 a love, love story saga, tra- tragic love story set in the 30s in Miller's Flat. And I got a, another letter back, which is always good to get a letter back. And it was said basically it um, groaned under the weight of significance. So, so I thought, well, it's better than groaning under the weight of insignificance. And, but I was really happy with that because I spent over two years writing it. So I sent it off to, I sent email query letters, by then I had email. So I sent off letters to agents around the world saying, my first line was help, I'm trapped in the world's smallest market. <laughs> and I gave them a synopsis and said, we'd like to read it. And two, public, two agents, one in London, one in America said they would love to read it. One, one agent finally took me on in um, London and they were crime normally uh, the Jane Gregory uh, agency they were t- had Val McDermott and Lynette Walters and all the big crime writers were under their umbrella and they wanted to expand uh, and she, this was one of the first books they took on outside of crime and she loved it and they spent another two years editing it with me and totally changed it from you know, it was a 400 page when it started and ended up being 620 pages and then they got an editor and a special editor whose job was just to cut it by 30%. And then after another six months of working, she said, said um, you're, you're very difficult, almost impossible to edit. So she only managed to cut 100 pages. And so then they, but then they thought, cool, it's good. They all loved it. Took it to the London Book Fair. And at about midnight, one night, we got a call from the agent saying, She's very excited. All the, there's been lots of uh, scouts from publishers who have taken and read it and come back with saying it's great. We love it. We're taking it on. The, and then over the next six months, we got more and more. It just it's too far away. New Zealand in the thirties. One publisher said, "I'm a new imprint. This is a new imprint. If I was further along, I might have taken it, but you only get one chance at this." So regretfully have to pass on and in the end it was just all filtered away and flitted away and I was left having written for seven years full time and I was doing all the housework and everything but uh, having a earning job <laughs> so I did everything Marion cooked she likes cooking so that was her job I did everything else and by that stage her girlfriends were saying 
I wouldn't put up with that. You should kick him out. Tell him to get a job. And I was thinking, but if it was reversed, they'd probably be saying, oh, you're working so hard. You should go and have a holiday. Go and treat yourself somewhere to a spa. <laughs> and I was thinking, uh, and Murray was trusting, believing in me and liked my work. And and I was just struggling on, thinking, what am I going to do? Maybe I'm not. But all these letters from editors had come in saying they want encourage me to continue they said there's something there there's something there you can I encourage you to continue and then a friend was doing a, a children's writing course in Dunedin online and she said would you like to see the stuff um, the material for picture book writing and I'd never thought about picture books because I had only ever read two picture books in my life when I was eight someone gave me two for my birthday and I didn't have children I didn't really know anyone with children. This was, my friends were just starting to have children, so none of them had really reached the age when there's picture books. And my friend was actually learning because she wanted had a young kid who was only three by that stage and was hoping to write for her kid, for her daughter. And so I thought, well, yep, fine. I am sure I'm desperate by this stage. And she sent me the stuff and I read it and it was 24, 32 pages, blah, blah, blah. Woke up the next morning with a story sort of conceptual story about going through a house looking for animals, big feet and big bum, and came up with the name of the Hopple Plop, because when it jumped on its feet it went hopple, when it jumped on its bum it went plop. So I wrote the Hopple Plop in the morning. It all was in my head, all I had to come up with was the name and the little stories for each room. And I said, I'm done. And she said, you can't be that easy. It's done. So I read it after lunch and went, yep, I'm sending it. So I sent it to Scholastic, and they wanted it. So, so I thought, oh, that was easy. <laughs> Three hours of work after seven years, I think I'll take that. So I started writing picture books and I wrote and wrote and wrote and of course didn't get anywhere with them. And it was basically another year of writing, sending a story every week basically. And then finally um, Christine Dale, who was the publisher at Scholastic at the time, rang up and said they love my stories. They said they always read them out in the office, they have a good laugh, it's always good. She said, but they're not picture books. And I was thinking, of course not, there's no pictures. <laughs> hey, how dim are you? <laughs> this is like, you're supposed to be a publisher, you should know this. But it wasn't, I was writing old stories. I was writing old school stories, like from when I grew up. And, and it wasn't a picture book, it was just a story. An interesting story, funny story, but it wasn't anything to turn into a picture book, really. And so I went off and read some picture books finally. I went, it occurred to me that maybe I should find out a little bit more about these picture books that I've heard of, which I was now writing. So I went off and read some and started to get an idea. And then and I got my second book published, which was uh, uh, Bear in the Room Next Door, which is another little story, which is, um, never went particularly well, but kids still love it today. I've, read it out and people, kids still, and people like, like Hopplop, I still get letters today from kids saying it's their favourite story, even though we call it the Hopple Flop because it didn't really end, end up paying out the advance of $800. So I earned $800 that year, which is quite exciting. And then I wrote a story called Kiss Kiss Yak Yak, which was, uh, I entered it in the Joy Cowley competition, which is a storylines organisation competition which um, Christine Dale suggested I should do. 
So I sent it to them and I won the competition and I got called in the middle of night, um, middle evening by the chair of the storyline saying, congratulations, you've won the Joy Cowley Award, but you do realise you can't keep that title. Kiss, kiss, yuck, yuck, because it'll put children off kissing. And I went, okay, whatever, this is $1,500 prize money here. <laughs> I will sell my soul at this point for $1,500. So yes, fine, no. And she said, you know, you know, we want to write it for younger kids as well. The competition was for six to eight, but Joy thought that it was more for three to six. So I said, yep, fine, whatever, give me money. And so I got to write with Joy and she wrote, wrote another version of the story and said, this is the type of thing we'd be looking at. And so I said, cool. So we played around and a year later, Kiss Kiss Yakup came out and won the Children's Choice Award and the Best Picture Book in New Zealand Award. And that was when I first started felt like I was a picture book writer and I actually settled then for that was my thing and it, I started just writing picture books and I ended up next year I had two books out and I had three and I had in my peak I had five books out and with different publishers and starting to actually make a living just barely if you imagine the baseline is like the doll <laughs> that's sort of basic living anything about that is a good living so I was making enough to even go on holiday. I didn't leave Otago for 12 years, I think. So that was um, quite exciting to go to Australia. But in the, in the meantime, I sort of my process started developing. You know, you start figuring out what you're doing and what you, how you do it. So imagine my grandfather dying. Because when he died, he my grandmother died first, and she and was a Catholic, which I didn't know about until she died. And she was buried in the Catholic cemetery with her family. And my grandfather wasn't going to be allowed to be buried there unless he converted. So he spent the last year of his life doing going through the whole process of becoming Catholic. And and I went and stayed with him a couple of times and he would just go on about how what how ridiculous it was, how what a this what shitty they were going through to just try to be together with his wife in the cemetery and it was all just hypocrisy really he wasn't at all convinced by it and then basically a year later after she died he died so and um so that was about it it was basically i was imagining him dying and the funeral all these people from all different cultures and nationalities and races turn up and uh, and the kid as in the young version of me would be saying where is he where is my grandfather now he's dead where is he and all these nationalities and all these religions would say where he was and so I did, and it was just terrible which is part of my process I've discovered <laughs> I write terrible stories <laughs> my first story is so terrible I normally will never even show it to the world and so it, it's just so saccharine and so so um, preachy and so terrible but I just put it and I just keep working on it and just keep trying to and I did some research which shows how desperate I was because research is anathema to me I just avoid research like the plague um, and so I researched all these different versions of death what ancient Egyptians believe what all these people believed and I was trying to and I'd have this whole file with little tiny almost rhymes with what religions believe and they're just terrible they're just embarrassingly terrible and but it, through that I kept thinking about it and 
one day I was, as is my process, I was talking to a librarian about something completely different. And suddenly I had mentioned the story that I'm doing, working on death. It was just a story about death, what happens after you die. And suddenly I was talking to the librarian and suddenly I went, hoo-hoo. Duh. And suddenly it was like a hoo-hoo beetle. The sound, hoo-hoo. It's a hoo-hoo. Wow, that's a great sound. And when it dies, it leaves an empty shell. My God, this is, that's, that's it. It's not, why am I writing about a, a, a person? It's, well, how stupid, it's a picture book. I like how the anthropomorphism goes in and out of fashion. Some people, you know, say, oh no, it's, we can't have animals walking around with hats on because they, the animals don't wear hats. And <laughs> all that sort of stuff, arguments. And I, but I actually quite like it because my, my, all my characters are never animals. They're actually kids and they're all, from a kid's perspective and so this was suddenly a hoo-hoo beetle and a little hoo-hoo too once i had the sound a hoo-hoo flew to the moon and back then it was suddenly within two days i had the rough draft of the story done after two and a bit years of writing and writing and writing and terrible terrible and digging myself a bigger hole you feel like i feel like i'm digging a hole because the more you do the more you think this is just getting further and further away from any good story here and then it went on and won the picture book of the year. Yeah, and I even beat, beat Margaret May. Of course, then she beat me the next two times. Malou is the, the lonely mule. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Can you tell us about it? Well, Malou was, yeah, the story originally started, embarrassingly enough, um, as a story called Wonky Donkey. This was in 2008, before, really? before Wonky Donkey Goodness me. was actually a book. Because I basically, I, I had the idea about... It was just a silly idea, and my ideas start from to often just like a duck stuck was an idea. That was the idea. Duck gets stuck, no problem. And this one was about, you know, the old joke with um, sheep which walk around the hill the same way all the time, so they have one leg short, two legs short than the other. And I thought about donkey, a donkey walking around, but his instead of his left legs being shorter than his right, his right legs are shorter than his left. So he was walking around the herd and was feeling wonky because, and wonky donkey was just a way of conceptualizing and having a, a word hook, a language hook for me uh, is important to have this sense of linguistic thread through it. And so I had a wonky donkey idea and it was again a terrible story. It was just not working, it was just a joke. And then wonky donkey came out in 2010, I think, or 2011 as a book, it came out as a song sometimes. And then it was, well, okay, I can't. I even Googled it then, it was Wonky Donkey was the name of a pub and it was a joke and it was already there. And I was thinking, well, I've lost faith in it anyway. So I started calling it just Donkey and it was just this, still this terrible story. And then at some point, it, it's about the notion of what's the story about. And suddenly it was actually, what does this donkey want? Instead of being just a joke, that it was feeling wonky. It was actually wanting something, which was to go to the glittering green sea. And that was my my hook through it, was that the donkey wanted to go to the glittering green sea, which was this, then became this positive journey, this quest to find this place where, which is like, <laughs> like me, and finding this bliss from being in this sun-baked hills high in the in the dusty outcrop and the sun-baked hills and always travelling the same direction and that sort of thing. So, and it suddenly became 
well, he just turned around and went the other way and to, towards the glittering sea. And then it, it occurred to me, it's not a donkey, it's a mule. It has to be a mule. Because the thing is that on the way he meets friends, he meets a goat and a, people who are wanting the same thing, or animals that are wanting the same thing to reach the glittering green sea. And then, but it's only the stubbornness which gets you there in the end. So yeah, it became Melu because it's an anagram of mule, of course. And interestingly, was when it got translated in German, it um, became Elsa. So Melu, my male mule, became Elsa, my female donkey. And it ended up becoming the donkey because in German they say stubborn as a donkey, not stubborn as a mule. And the translator kept the anagram, which was amazing. So it was like El an Esel, which is a German for donkey, became Elsa. So, so it became a, so it's quite appropriate in my case that in Germany it's a, it's a female um, donkey and here it's a male mule, so it's all... Were you aware when you were writing it that it was slightly autobiographical? Oh, at some point it sort of, I suddenly thought, it's, this is sort of me, because I mean all my stories are me. It's important to write your own self in there especially this deeper self, there's values and your a picture book which is only a story is just a very superficial thing. If you you know, if you're like me, if you're a socialist, greeny, <laughs> transgender <laughs> all these things I have to write from that deep well of left wing environmental sustainability, gender diversity well, I can't just write some superficial story. I mean, I have written superficial stories. I'm not, I'm not always deep. <laughs> and the world doesn't need constant deep depth in their stories. And there's place for fun stories. And, but it's always about me somehow. It's always coming from a personal place. And that's all we have time for today, but our next episode will feature more from this discussion in 2020 between Carl Newburn and Naomi Arnold. What, what was that like to, to have that um, recognition from the establishment? The establishment literary community, it's a, a residency, is a big deal. The thing is, it's a children's writer in residence, which is not such a big deal. <laughs> To make sure you catch that episode and hear past episodes with a range of New Zealand writers, subscribe to the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast on Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu-Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season and also UNESCO and the Otago Community Trust for the funding to record new oral histories with authors based in Otago. Noturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. I'm Karen Hay, and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.